Hi, this is Alex Dissenhoff. I'm the DP of the Mosquito Coast, and this is the Go Creative Show. Hello, and welcome to the Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers. My name is Ben Consoli, and today we speak with Alex Dissenhoff, Director of Photography for the Mosquito Coast on Apple TV+. Alex, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. There is so much to talk about. And I was just sort of doing a little bit of a rundown with you before we rolled about all the things I wanted to discuss. But we're talking about uh, color treatments. We're talking about camera motion. We're talking about all the stuff that goes into creating the look of a TV series. So there's a lot to discuss. And we will start in just a minute. But before we get there, I want to mention our sponsor, MZ Education for Creatives. Uh, you can find all things about MZ at gocreativeshow.com forward slash MZ, M-Z-E-D. Of course, follow us on your favorite podcast app. Click subscribe and you will never miss an episode. And Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. All things Go Creative Show at gocreativeshow.com. So, Alex, this is such a great show. The Mosquito Coast on Apple TV Plus. So much action, so much energy. I love the look of it. What a fun project to be part of. You did episode one and two. So you really are setting the pace for what this will look like. Um, you know, a lot of times DPs come on, they'll shoot a pilot for something and they sort of don't need to touch it again. Like they, they did the first episode and somebody else takes it over. You had the benefit of doing the first two. So viewers are really getting an insight into the vision that you have. And I'd love to talk about kind of how you started to form the look and the feel and the pace of the show and where that inspiration came from. Before COVID uh, happened, uh, the plan was actually that I would do six of the nine episodes that were planned. Mm. Um, okay. So, and Rupert and I would do a lot of them together. And so I actually did episodes one, two, and four. Um, and uh, I brought in a, a friend of mine, Guillermo Garza, who came in and shot episode three. And then he was about to kind of go into production or maybe he was a week into production on episode five when COVID hit and the world shut down. And, yeah. and, uh, and then I, uh, when it, when it was time to kind of come back, um, to, to shoot the rest, I actually had another commitment, uh, what I'm doing here in New Zealand actually ah, okay. I, it was, so I, and, and Rupert did too. So we, we weren't able to continue with the show, but that being said, we had planned a huge arc, a visual arc for the whole thing. So what was nice about it was we were able to really set the the, the tone and, and the kind of um, we knew what was going to what was coming. Now, it did change a little bit when COVID hit. They had to rewrite things. You know, the the, the season became seven episodes instead of nine episodes. Um, yeah. You know, just the practicalities of, of making television with a, with a release timeline. Um, so, but, but long story short, that's what happened. So, so the first two episodes we were always planning on shooting as a block. Um, and that's how we, we prepared it. And, and the idea was, you know, I had some references like Paris, Texas, you know, Wim Wenders and Robbie Mueller, uh, photography on that film is, is incredible. And there was a certain Americana feeling that we wanted to give, uh, Stockton, um, and the colors and the color treatment of Stockton. And then, it was really important for, for us to establish their house and their home as a place that was, you know, lived in and, and warm <clears throat> and uh, a place that you felt like it would be hard to leave, you know, especially for the kids. You know, when, when you, you wanted to subconsciously feel the loss of their home. And so in order to do that, we wanted to make the home feel 
like a like a good place to be, even if it was a bit ramshackle and and kind of rough around the edges. It, it you know we pumped in a lot of warm light through the windows. We we always shot. We tried to shoot with sun and, and really try or we created sunlight. We warmed everything up. The, we spent a lot of time picking the paint colors and you know, the rooms and really um, to, to create this this place for the family that you felt uh, um, they really lived in, and then that it was a real loss when they had to go. And I think that's so important because especially in the first episode, you have to start to understand these people, to like these people, and to like kind of feel for them when their life changes. And I think you're doing a, re- a great job at this. I want to dive just a little bit more into this, this goal of yours to make that house feel warm, to make that house feel comfortable, and to give the audience a sense of loss when they need to leave it. So you mentioned using sunlight and warming things up. What are some of the other things that you did to make that such a warm, comfortable place? Well, I think, um, uh, you know, I, a lot of it was just adding texture, always having layers to the image, um, putting a lot of atmosphere in the house. Um, you know, if you look at some of the shots, you know, we always uh, pretty much all the, the sunlight coming to the house was either timed, you know, we, we worked our schedule around it or we manufactured it. They lights up the windows and yeah. And we wanted to let it feel like a natural place though. You know, we let the big light come in through the windows and we wouldn't do much else inside um and uh we wanted to really see all of the, each space and, and let the characters reside in them so we it was really a combination of production design costume design and then you know camera the lighting and then camera movement which is something the show it's a really important part of the show we discover the house we discover every every environment we discover really is with a sense of propulsive camera movement um, yes, because the Rupert really wanted it to be okay. This character, you know, these characters are on the run. We want the camera to be right over their shoulder, almost in, in a proverbial sense. It's discovering these places. So even in the house, you know, you see Ali's workshop. You've seen it once during the day, but now he's there at night, and you, you know, you're traveling. Camera's traveling around the whole workshop. We see Margot at the door at one point, then we reveal Ali again, and. You know, in just one shot, you get to see a little bit of a snippet into his mind and what he's all these little trinkets and his projects. And again, just it's it's letting the audience kind of soak in who these people are without having to tell it to them. Yep, exactly. And I I do want to focus a lot on camera motion. And let's just do it because you brought it up. And mm-hmm. why not now? No time like the present. Um, yeah. So I think. This, the first, the first two episodes really are kind of like almost a, it's like a masterclass in camera motion because you're really employing so many different techniques. I mean, there's like dolly, there's gimbal work, there's drones, there's, there's so much happening and it feels very cohesive and consistent. And that must be a challenge to be able to have so much camera motion and not feel, not make it feel jarring. Um, so talk to me about the decision for these big, large camera moves. What do they mean to the story? And how are you executing them in a way that feels right for the characters? Yeah. Um, you know, I think it's funny. Camera movement always, I think, was the scariest thing for me coming up and, and learning. Why is the, that? The craft is in front of me. Well, because I think <clears throat> it's so hard to know sometimes when it will be, when you when it does feel right and when it doesn't, right? Um to mean the lighting aspect of, 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 of 
visualizing a story was always something that I think came a little more naturally. So I, Rupert, I have to credit Rupert a lot in, in, in our relationship over the last, you know, half decade, really pushing me into kind of new, new ways of moving the camera and, and reasons for moving the camera. And, um, you know, we had the great advantage of it being a story about a family who ultimately is on the run and, and we don't know really why or, and, or where they're going. And yep. so we have, we can, we wanted right away to, to establish this camera as some, as an active participant in this journey that we're, dis- we're, we're allowing the characters to discover, to allow us to discover the places as viewers. Right. So <clears throat> we start off right away, you know, um, this little, it's half practical, half CG shot with, through the, uh, ice machine, the very beginning of episode one, you know, we used a probe lens to push through a real, you know, tunnel into this box they built and then CG takes over. And then we used a different kind of lens, a T-Rex, uh, score. Uh, it's a, it's like, what um, is that? A T-Rex line? <laughs> it's a, it's a probe. It's a basically, um, a snorkel lens, which you can get, it allows you to get the camera into kind of a unique position and it allows for really close focus. And it's when the, the ice cube comes out and the, you know, and the son and, and, uh, the dad look at the ice cube and the ice cube and them are in focus. And we shot that at like a T22. So we could see both in focus pumped a crazy amount of light into that room. And it allowed for, you know, the, fo- the ice cube was maybe an inch away from the lens. And so, uh, look you at know, this, I've got a picture yeah, of it right crazy, here. Right? Up. <laughs> I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Wow. That's yeah. an expensive lens to rent for a day. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but you know, it, it, it is, uh, <laughs> but you know, it, it's pretty cool because, you know, just right there, we're setting this kind of, you know, the expectation that the camera is going to be active. Um, and then, you know, and then the next scene we, we shoot, you know, it was me in a helicopter flying over the fields north of LA. We, we tip down into the dirt and then we pick up with a drone shot, you know, stitch into a drone that goes over this humongous factory farm. You know, that goes all the way into a close-up of a valley. And again, within the first three minutes or whatever, five minutes of the show, you've established that the camera uh, will move and it will move a lot. And, and it's not doing it superfluously. It's, it's really, um, it's allowing you to kind of marinate in these environments, you know? Yeah, and something that I thought was kind of interesting about the way that you approach the camera motion, and I'm curious to see if you'll even agree with this, mm-hmm. is it seems like they don't feel like oneers in that you're just doing a motion shot to like blow through a bunch of pages and get things done quick. It, it feels, it feels like you're almost kind of extending the story a bit. Like you're letting the audience, like you're letting the audience experience the location and sort of discover the space, not throwing too much content at them, more or less just being like, this is our environment. And you're getting a feel for the character throughout the motion. Do you know what I'm saying? I'm not really articulating it well, but there's a difference between the idea of a oneer and kind of these big discovery experiential um, uh, 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 motion shots. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And and that's what it was about, really, was it was never about, um, you know, combining uh, action pieces or, 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 you know, anything like that. It was truly about um, the atmospheric nature of the show and experiencing these places. And, and again, we wanted to feel, especially in these first two episodes, you know, the first episode with the house, let, let the audience understand, um, you know, who these people are 
not through exposition, but through uh, visualization of their world, right? So let's see their world. Um, and that was Rupert's kind of whole thing is, you know, we need to really just kind of little sit in it a, a bit before the real kind of action kicks off. And then, and then when they go out into the world, when Ali, you know, brings his son to the, to the garbage dump or to collect the oil for the truck and things like this, every environment we, we, we scouted everything we found, um, the, you know, the train station with him and his daughter, they were, they're kind of exaggerated realities of, of what the real world is, right? This garbage dump was a place that we actually doesn't exist in America anymore. Uh, we, that was in Mexico, you know, and we mm. played it for America. But the idea that it's this overwhelming amount of discarded commercial detritus, um, they were all exaggerations of reality and they were visual exaggerations of reality to show you how Ali views, you know, the, the modern world and, and how he's showing his kid. And so we wanted to, again, it was always about showing the audience, not just telling them. And so the more we could open up it up with our, with our camera, you know, the better. So. Do you think about scale when you're doing these types of motion shots and you're up in a drone in a helicopter? Are you concerned with how am I representing scale here? And how does that, like, how does that reflect on the characters in the story? Um, in, in terms of, uh, in terms of like, okay, so you're revealing the home, let's say, and you're showing it on this big lot of land. There's an isolation factor to that. There's something that's almost vulnerable to it when you're going through this factory and it's this more like kind of tight quarters, narrow rows following along this pathway. It's very leading. It's very almost like narrowing of your perspective. Mm -hmm. Are you thinking about things like that as you're doing these? Or is it simply just like, that's a cool shot. Let's do it. <laughs> no, no. I, I mean, uh, no, I think it's all story driven. It really is. I mean, we spent, you know, this is a, truly a location based show, right? We didn't build any sets. It was, it was all found locations. Wow. We spent, you know, we spent months uh, scouting and, and, and finding the right places. And even you know, the house, <clears throat> the house was a oh, real yeah. house. Oh, wow. Totally. A hundred percent of it was a real house. I mean, there was not one, we, we, you know, painted the insides. We, we decked out the little outbuilding to make it his workshop, but nothing was, nothing was, um, built, uh, That's in terms cool. of structures. Yeah. And it was important for us to find a place that did feel isolated and vulnerable. You know, this is a family is hiding out again. You don't really know why. Um, uh, uh, but you do have to see that they are outside of, you know, the kind of the modern world. Um, and so all those shots where you see the house by itself in the middle of these big fields surrounded by, you know, day farm workers and stuff like that, it, it, they're, they're, they're really important to show because again, they tell you this, the, the, the family's situation without having to tell it to you with words. What is the biggest challenge when working in real environments like that? Not having to, like yeah. choosing to do a real house instead of a house in a, or a, a built house in a studio. Sure. Yeah. What, what's the biggest challenge? It's always about control, right? As a cinematographer, you're always looking to control every element if you can, uh, because, you know, these scenes, for instance, you know, if you and I having a dialogue here, if we were to shoot it as part of a movie, you'd shoot your coverage and then you'd shoot my coverage and it might take three, four hours and the light changes if we're sitting outside, you know? And mm. so it's always about, you know, of course, if you're in a studio, you can control every single thing. Um, so it's always this 
constant battle of control and, and, and scheduling to, to accommodate the light, uh, changing weather, all those things. Um, so that's, yeah, I mean, that's, that's what it is, but you know, Rupert and I've done a lot of work together and we always work in real environments. Um, and uh, a lot of my career has been working in, you know, especially early on in, in the indie movies, it's always working in real environments. And so you embrace those challenges and you incorporate them into the storytelling oftentimes. Um, and, and you always find it's, it's much more inspiring, I think, when you're in a real house and you see the real vista because all of a sudden you come up with, <clears throat> you come up with interesting shots. You know, uh, we found there's a shot when at the, I think it's, episode one where the the teenage daughter kind of separates from the family a little bit mm -hmm. and you see the mom in the living room of the house looking for her daughter and she leaves frame and then all of a sudden we push in and we rack focus and we see the daughter in the far distance running through the farmlands you know and and again you can't pick you can't come up with a shot like that unless you've found a house like that in the middle of farmlands so yeah um you know, it's so it's like it's a give and take. It's like you're giving up a lot of control, and you, and then you're you're trying to fight for it every minute of every day. Um, but you're also getting this texture and this realness that you just can't. It's just impossible to repl replicate in the stage. You know. Let's talk about the uh, camera package that you chose for the Mosquito Coast. Um, what did you test, and what ultimately did you choose? So I always knew I wanted to. Stick with the Alexic family. I just I've used it so much over the years. I, I love the 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 user kind of the usability of it and and the, the interface. And then I have a great relationship with my colorist Tom Poole. We've worked together a lot, um, and we have a few. We knew we were going to develop some custom lookup tables, lots um, to create the look I wanted for the show. And I just. I just know the color science of the Alexa so well at this point that it just felt sure. like the right choice. So that was always there. I, I went with the LF Mini um, because we wanted we wanted to play with a slightly larger format. We had these just for many reasons. Lar you know, we had these big landscapes. We also had small rooms that you could um, the the Mini uh, form would would fit well in, and and so much camera movement on gimbals, all sorts of stuff. Again, keeping it with the Mini just made sense. So really the testing came in with the lenses. I use mm. the DNA, D DNA LF lenses from Harry. DNA, uh, let me see. DNA. I'm going to just pull this up so I can take a look sure. at it. Yeah. DNA LF lens. Oh, here they are. Yep. Yeah. I there know that when people, yeah. when people choose yeah. the, um, to use the Alexa mini LF, mm -hmm. you do, you are kind of limiting your you know, lens choices, um, you, are. you know, more and more there's, you know, as time goes on, there's going to be more options, but you are kind of like, it's, that's a pretty dramatic choice. Um, it's a yeah. not dramatic, but it's a significant choice because you're sort of narrowing your, you're narrowing your field of lenses that you can choose from. Yes. Yeah. So we, we decided, I, so I tested the, uh, those, yeah, I mean, I basically tested most of the lenses available for the LF. The, the larger sensor at the time, which was now 2019, fall of 2019. Um, and uh, I, we, I think that it came down to the signature primes uh, from Airy and the DNAs, which the DNAs just have a little bit more character to them. Uh, I just, there's something about the kind of fall off on the edges that 
fit the kind of rough hewn quality of our story uh, that I really loved. So I think that makes sense, choosing the yeah. DNA. What was the other lenses yeah. that you, you said, the signature primes? The signature primes, which are beautiful lenses. Um, I think, I think uh, like Roger Deakins used them on 1917. I want to say yeah. it was those ones. Uh, the, you know, you, you've seen, the, everyone's probably seen one of their favorite shows were shot with these lenses. You know, they're beautiful. Yeah. Um, they just, for me, they were a little... They're actually a little bigger, which I, again, I knew we were going to be moving the camera so much that I wanted smaller lenses, um, which the DNAs have a little bit of a lighter profile. Um, and then uh, again, they're just, there was just this quality. The DNAs have this, this a bit, you know, it's, it's a bit obnoxious, but there's this, you know, this quality to them that it's hard to explain that, that has this great fall off to them and this, mm. this organic feel to the glass, you know, and, and they're, they're all a little bit different from each other, which can be a challenge, you know, um, but these days it's not much of a challenge, you know, in terms of digital grading, it's, you know, you can just correct, you know, uh, the, any little differences in color contrast and stuff like that. Let's take a quick moment and talk about MZ education for creatives. Now, MZ is really kind of like the Netflix for filmmaking education. Uh, but it's so much more than that because the quality is just at its highest level. So when you go to MZ, you are faced with hundreds and hundreds of hours of high-quality video-based filmmaking education covering all sorts of topics like cinematography and directing, post-production, visual storytelling, and more. And it's all there at gocreativeshow.com forward slash MZ. Now, the courses, certainly the topics, the subject matter, that's all extremely important. But even more important are the teachers. Um, I don't know about you, but I can't learn anything unless the teachers are high quality. I'm just not that type of person. I need to, I need to really feel like the teacher is giving me information and they need to be good at their craft or else I just can't absorb the information. And that is one of the reasons, just one of many, that I love MZ. Because we're talking about trainers that are in the field doing it at, an, at, at a high level. Like, okay, the art and technique of film editing is one of the courses on MZ. And it's taught by Tom Cross, who is the editor of La La Land and Whiplash. You know what I mean? It's like we're, we're dealing with people that are working at a high level, working in the industry and really sharing their knowledge. Um, we've got Vincent LaFerre on there, Shane Hurlbut, Philip Bloom, and it goes on and on and on. Now, here's the cool part you get 20% off your purchase by using uh, coupon code go, uh, GCS20. So GCS20. Use that in the coupon code area at checkout and you will get 20% off. And yes, you can buy individual courses and that's fine. But what I recommend is becoming an MZ Pro member because then you have access to everything. And who wouldn't want that? You know, there's certainly topics that you're interested in, but What's cool is that the stuff that you might not necessarily think you're interested in or might not necessarily think you have a talent for, but try it out. You may unlock something new and uh, give yourself a new tool for your arsenal. So it's all there at gocreativeshow.com forward slash MZ, M-Z-E-D, M-Z, education for creatives. You have quite a significant exterior sequence in the second episode. Um, you know, the first 10 minutes or so of the episode is outside quite a bit and at night. And um, you've got some beautiful opportunity for just gorgeous bokeh back there with all the street lights and all the mm -hmm. colors out there. Um, I want to talk about that sequence, but before we do, I just want to talk to you about your your color signs for this and the, the color palette that you chose because it's it's very consistent 
and it's it's given me kind of a tealish, orangish sort of vibe, but it's almost like a modern version of that. I'm curious, you know, it, in your perspective, how do you describe the color of the Mosquito Coast and how did you get there? Yeah, um, it's interesting. So, I mean, again, a lot, I looked at a lot of photography from uh, some like Wim Wenders and, and, and Robbie Mueller, uh, who, you know, did a few great movies together, but Paris, Texas was a specific one for their night work that I loved. There was this green and these greens in that movie and, and reds that were just so quintessentially American. I don't know how to the best describe it, but it's just this beautiful palette. Um, and then, uh, you know, as you go further south into Mexico, I looked at, you know, Alex Webb's photography and, and all sorts of different things like that. And I found some beautiful, uh, colors that I really, I felt like would be good for the show. And so that it kind of evolved from some of that, uh, just pouring through references, you know, and the teal and orange thing, you know, obviously there's like the Michael Bay version of it, which yeah. is, um, you know, kind of blockbuster movie. And I didn't want to go there. I didn't think that was appropriate for our storytelling. Ours is a bit more grimy and, and rough. And, and there's a beauty to, I think, sodium street lights. I knew I wanted to base the show at night when uh, when we were going nights i wanted to base it in this kind of sodium and metal halide kind of urban vape you know this this world where you can mix those two colors which are naturally sodium vapor lights burn orange on film and, and in real life and then uh the kind of uh metal halide uh world and fluorescent world burn more green and and teal and so I knew that those were going to be the contrasting colors at night because I had no real interest in shooting clean white LEDs that are now coming, you know, in, into most cities. Um, I wanted it to be a visualization again of Ali's world of his worldview, uh, which was that the world is not a nice place, that the world is filled with empty, you know, consumers and, and, uh, a broken down system. And, and visually those lights have this kind of, uh, grittiness to them because they're not meant for filmmaking. Um, and so they give these kind of pallid tones. Um, so anyway, and they're well, also so well, very like yeah. relatable. Like you, you see those yeah. lights in film and you're like, you just know, I mean, maybe younger yeah. people that ha haven't really experienced that. If, right, like, right. A, you know, a teenager or early 20 something is, yeah. it wouldn't make any sense. But, yeah. um, but I certainly can relate to that color and it, yeah. and it makes sense. It has, it has a, a gritty, urban city nighttime feel look yeah and i've explored that look uh, several times in my in the last few years in different projects and and i there's something about it that i keep coming back to i that draws me to the because the, because it's still colorful that's the other thing it, it's yeah. it's it's certainly it, it's not like you're draining all the color out of your nights um which oftentimes can be the tendency um and I wanted to keep the, the show colorful. So that that's kind of, it was really built around practical lighting, knowing that I was gonna rely on these things. And and I would oftentimes, you know, that that first few minutes of the second episode was split between California and Mexico, all to look like California, but it was, it was a really tricky sequence actually to shoot between two countries and not know the seams uh, between them. Yeah. So I would, you know, we, we carried a bunch of practical, you know, buy them at, Home Depot or wherever, you know, practical lights, you know, and put them up on poles uh, along the streets and create our own, our no, own nighttime environments.
So let's talk about that opening scene in episode two and what made it so challenging. You had mentioned that you're shooting it in California and in Mexico. So there's one challenge. But um, but yeah, just kind of walk me through the well, first of all, why? Why? Why did that? Why did that happen? Uh, uh, you know, it's, it's one of the logistical challenges with filmmaking is is time and money always are the, the, the main uh, guides to our, what we do in terms of how <laughs> yes. we do things. Um, and so it was determined as we were shooting that we just couldn't afford to keep shooting in America. We knew we were going to be going to Mexico anyway for a lot of the material. And so they kind of, they just, and in a lot of the locations we weren't finding in California, like the garbage dump, for instance, it just doesn't exist that, you know, you can't have that much open waste anywhere in America. Um, so, so we just, they made the decision, Hey, you know what, let's, let's, pull down to Mexico and we went to Mexicali right on the border and um, right over the border and found a lot of these amazing locations. The, the um, abandoned mall that they, the alley and, and Dina go into and see all the homeless people in Columbus encampment, this massive, you know, broken down again, palace of consumerism that is broken yep. down again. It's just a visualization of Ali's worldview. Um, that was in Mexicali. And then, you know, there's this sequence at the end of episode one, that's this drive, you know, they're driving around. I won't give it away. It's kind of this exciting piece with, with dad and daughter. Um, and then going, so some of that was in California uh, above LA. And then um, some of it were in streets in Mexico, just again, because of the scheduling and all that stuff. And then as they come to this, this uh, mall, the intersection outside the mall was in one part of Mexicali. The mall was in a different part of Mexicali. And, um, you know, we built a, an extra window up above the intersection to shoot through to make it look like he's, you know, when they go in the mall, they look down on this intersection, they see police arriving. All There's all these things. And then there's the sewer yeah. shot, which we're looking into a sewer and working out of sewer that was built in a parking lot somewhere else. I don't even remember what part of the country we were in at that point. Um, and so, you know, the continuity of lighting was obviously a real challenge. And that was why, you know, that I picked locations that we could control and we put all of our, all those street lights you see, everything was us. That was not really, it was not using existing lighting. It was meant to look like we were using existing lighting, but actually it was very controlled. And, and I also knew we'd be covering a lot of ground. You know, we, we start with this butterfly on a Coke can, we travel whole city block, you know, to then, uh, you know, reveal the car driving by. So I, I knew that we were going to be seeing huge swaths of streets at night. Um, and I needed control. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't rely on what the world was going to give us. So. Yeah. All right. So there's a <laughs> yeah. bunch of things there. I want to, I want to get into real quick. Okay. So yeah, for, we'll probably work backwards because it's the freshest mm-hmm. in my mind, but you had mm-hmm. mentioned that it, we're, we're seeing a lot of street lights in this mm-hmm. scene, exterior, outside. You're saying those are yours. Are you talking about just changing the bulbs and fixtures? Or are you bringing like actual like street lamp fixtures and putting them in the pavement? What, what, do, you, what do you mean by that? Both. Uh, okay. It's, um, it was, there were some poles there that we just replaced. Um, some, they had some modern, you know, again, more modern LED white lights um, that we just took them out and put our own sodium vapor lights in there were some in you know when you when you're gonna not when you know you're not gonna see the the base of the stand you know art department can put 
pulls up and and then you just put your light you know yep, in the yep. grand scheme in the grand scheme of things what the crazy things we do as filmmakers putting a pole up and a light on it is actually not as hard as it kind of sounds if you know you and i were to go do it on the street randomly by ourselves but when you have an infrastructure you know you the art department can get those things done pretty quickly. Yeah, um, and like you said, you're not seeing the base of it. A lot of it is in really soft focus, so you yeah, can get away with that type of stuff. Totally, um, totally. All right, so we've got that. Now, the next thing I wanted to talk about is, uh, you had said that over time you realized that budget and time and all that stuff sort of brought you to Mexico for some of mm -hmm. these things. Did you know from the beginning that you were gonna be shooting this sequence in so many different areas? No. No, we, we actually scouted all of it in the U.S. Okay. We spent hours planning for completely different locations. And then, uh, and then you know, re reality uh, came and smacked us in the face and, and we had to basically redo half of our planning. And so it was, a, it was something that I brought my um, gaffer, this amazing guy, Paul Samaniego, who uh, was instrumental in you know, setting the look with me in, in, in the States, but also I said to production, okay, if we're going to do this, I need to bring him because he knows, you know, everything from, you know, he's sitting there. We, we knew what, by the time we knew we were going to switch locations, then it became, okay, we have to measure the distance of the lights to the actors. We need to get exact, you know, um, stop readings. And we need to know because we're going to be cutting between, you know, a close-up in this country and a close-up in this country and they're in the same scene how do we make that work um and so it really was so instrumental to have someone else there who who could just focus on the lighting uh the technical aspect of matching you know and yeah. uh, he speaks spanish as well and so he could where we you know work with the mexican crew to to, to make everyone kind of understand uh, what we were going for get him on the same page and but it was really you know it was a big technical undertaking because you you have to as a viewer if you're take you know you you can't if you see the seams you know you're taken out of it so i mean i didn't see the seams i you I would never have thought it was shot in two different countries. <laughs> you know, there are obviously moments where you like, clearly they have to stitch this together because you just, you can't do it all in one shot. But, um, yeah. but never in a million years would I think you were bouncing from country to country. That is crazy. Mm -hmm. And when you know you need to yeah. do that, what are your biggest concerns? Um, I think it's just, again, um, consistency, right? It's, yeah. it's like we knew we were going to, you know, as soon as we started to look at locations in Mexico, we said, oh, wow, okay, these are amazing. You know, it's not a problem of not finding interesting places. Um, it was, it was the, just, you know, especially when you're on a location scout, um, you know, you're not, you have to imagine so much, right? It's like when yeah. we all location scout our, wherever we're going, it's, the, the final product is in your head. It's not on the street right there. So you're looking at a street that, you know, you go there at night, whatever, and it's a black hole. There's nothing there. There's not enough light to shoot. Or if there is light, they're not, it's not in the right place. And you say, okay, how can I make this, first of all, look the way I want it to look for the story and, and block out the way that the actors are going to be moving and all that stuff. And then there was this, just this extra layer to it of saying, okay, now how can I make this location here and this location over here feel like the same location, even though we're gonna be shooting it with a completely different crew, we're gonna be shooting it months apart, uh, we're gonna be in a different country. Um, and so it just took a lot of imagination and then a lot of kind of 
uh, real te- it's pretty tedious actually, just the going over and over where the lights are, how they're, you know, where they are in relation to the actors, um, the color temperatures of the sources, because, you know, even, even in, you know, these old sodium lights and these old mercury lights and this metal halide lights, all these things, you know, from unit to unit, they have a different color shift, you know, they're not manufactured to be film lights. So, yeah. you know, saying, okay, this is a scene, this is the light we use to, to, to key, you know, this very specific light is the one we use to key these characters here. We're going to bring it down to Mexico with us because that's, you know, that we want to capture that quality. Cause you know, the one that we get in Mexico just might not burn the same, you know, there might be, a, might be an older lamp. It might have different plastic on the front of it. Uh, you, you just never quite knew what you were going to get. So it just was, a you know, there was a lot of, uh, uh, worrying <laughs> and yeah. a lot of, uh, a lot of, uh, um, just kind of going over and over and over the plan. So, yeah. I want to switch gears for a minute and talk about your approach to shooting exterior daytime. Mm. Um, there's quite a bit of that. You're kind of all over the place. You're in big, the desert, you're in the city, you're kind of everywhere. Um, what is your approach to that? When you know you've got scenes like that coming up, how are you setting up your shots, your blocking, your lighting package to, you know, arm you with what you need to get the best stuff? Yeah. Um, well, it's evolved, I think, over the years a little bit. Um, you know, I've come from indie movies where you have nothing and you just shoot around the daylight. So I, I still always try to schedule, and I think probably most cinematographers do, you know, you, you plan for if you're going to be in full sun all day, you know, wherever you are. So you always shoot towards the, you know, backlight or side light. And, and you, you try to work with the director and the AD to kind of work the scenes out in a way that, you know, in the worst case scenario, if you can't cover the sun, if you, if you, you know, whatever it may be, and you don't want front flat sunlight, schedule it and plan it around that. And then, you know, and then it's the, the tools of control come in when you either don't want direct sunlight at all because the scene calls for, you know, overcast or, moodier, whatever it may be. Or if you have, you know, one of those days where the sun comes out and it goes away and, and that's where the, you know, the lights and the, the big overheads come in as well. Um, if we're up to me, you know, obviously I would never have to pull out a light outside. Uh, I just think you've kind of, you, uh, you know, it, does it feel like it, cheating to you? It, well, it just never feels right. You know, there's something about it. I can always tell, I can always tell when someone's put a light on outside because it just doesn't have the same quality as the sun. We don't we haven't invented a light that truly mimics sunlight, a uh, real true mm-hmm. harsh California sunlight or anywhere really. Um, and and also just it, that it takes more time. It's just, it's just, um, you know, you do it when you have to. Um, that's how I always look at it. Um, so again, it's really just about the planning of it and then reacting to what the real world gives you. So. so you'd rather just diffuse and bounce and just use the sun as your yeah. source. Yeah, I mean, if you look at most of the scenes, and especially the first two episodes on the Mosquito Coast, um, there's hard sunlight everywhere. Uh, and we, you know, if you if you look how they're blocked, almost always it's either back or side lit, unless I wanted it to be uh, front light, which there's one scene in particular with Ali and his son in this parking lot, Um when the police officer comes up in there and kind of this front light, but it was a low winter front light. Um, I knew it would look 
kind of interesting. There's this kind of very, uh, they're in this harsh urban landscape. Um, and I knew that at some point the way the scene was going to be blocking someone was going to have to be front lit. And, uh, and I didn't want to diffuse it because it just felt wrong. You know, it, it felt like let's embrace the kind of gritty reality of it all. So, um, I, I just like, Hey, you know, let's put them in the front light. They're kind of being interrogated by this police officer. Um, and uh, it feels appropriate for the scene. So it's not something to be afraid of if, if, if it works for the story. Um, but I certainly want to sh- wouldn't want to shoot everything, you know, blazing front light. Uh, and that's why you plan, you know, and that's why you try to try to work with a, your AD and your director. Most directors understand, I think, uh, you know, they want the show or the movie to look good too. And, and, uh, they'll work with you to, to make it happen. So. Yeah. I think a lot of people don't realize until you've done day exteriors and you are chasing the sun, like you don't necessarily think first about, I mean, people in your position that have been, you know, that do it at that level certainly do. But I think, you know, people that are kind of just starting out in their career or maybe doing commercial work or even corporate work and you're doing outside stuff, you don't you you don't necessarily think during the location scout like we should be placing our talent in a certain position so that we don't have front facing light. I mean, that's a lesson that you sort of learn through experience and mistakes, quite frankly. Yeah. And and I think it's another thing to think about foreground, middle ground, background, like as you're as you're developing a shot as well, because it's just as important too that, okay, so maybe your character, you've figured out a way to put them in the shade, but what's, what's 20 feet behind them. If there's a big white wall and it's going to be front lit all day, you might want to think about changing if you don't have the means to cover it or uh, unless that's the look you want again, you know, maybe that's Mm. the look you want. But, um, I think a lot of things that I've learned over the years is to really just the most time I spend kind of scouting actually is day exteriors because, you know, at nighttime you have, even though there's oftentimes more work putting in, put into the lighting, you uh, uh, eventually have more control. You just have more control, right? Because it's, again, it's almost like you're working in a, in a studio in some ways where you get to put the light where you want to put it. You know, there's no, there's not a big ball of fire in the sky moving around uh as you're trying to shoot um you know or at least so, there shouldn't uh, be <laughs> there shouldn't be if there is do you have other issues <laughs> rather than filmmaking um no i mean but really you know it's like it's the day where it requires the most scheduling and planning in, in many ways because you're going to be fighting this this force that you can't stop uh as much as you try you know um and so it's about it's about working with the talent working with the director working with the ad to to you know cheat and and oftentimes you know i've done things i don't remember if we did it with mosquito coast but you know uh even just recently in the shoot you know we were on top of a mountain and you know, you don't have much control. So, okay, well, you want to shoot in backlight? Well, tell the actors to just basically flip the scene 180 degrees, tweak it a little bit, and your background's a little different, and the light looks great uh, based on where the sun is. And even though if you were to shoot a wide shot of the scene, maybe you would you would see that they're completely 180 degrees from where they were. Um, you know, you just don't. There's no... You know, you can get away with with so much if you are, if you're trying to make the light look good on an actor and you're in a close up. Uh, you know, the actors will usually play ball as well because they want to look good. So yeah, of course, <laughs> you know? of course. Yeah. Well, the show certainly it looks 
It just looks so cool. And you guys should definitely check it out if you haven't already. The Mosquito Coast, seven episodes. It's on Apple TV Plus. And, um, uh, and it just, it has such a richness to the color palette that, it, well, the show that I watched right before it was um, Your Honor with, mm. um, mm-hmm. I, I always want to yeah, just yeah, call right, him Breaking Bad. But yeah, like, yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. talk about polar opposite. I mean, Your Honor is like gray. There's like no color anywhere. There's no joy or happiness anywhere. <laughs> it's yeah. just, it's a yeah. miserable uh, hour every show. night. Yeah, it's no. such a good show. But like, it is. Yeah. But it was so, it was so kind of fun to come to the Mosquito Coast after your honor because it's like bright and colorful and rich and the deep blacks and it's just it's just such a cool show visually and it's certainly well acted and it's a great show but you know it's go creative show we're, so we're talking about visuals here but certainly worth checking out if you guys haven't seen it already it's on Apple TV Plus uh, it's called the Mosquito Coast and um, thank you Alex for coming on and talking about it yeah thanks for having me appreciate it. All right, I want to thank Alex Dissenhoff for coming on the show and talking to us all about the Mosquito Coast on Apple TV+. I also want to thank Connor Crosby from ignitionvisuals.com for producing this show and Dave Siegel from seagullsound.com for mixing and mastering and making Go Creative shows sound so good. So thank you guys for helping us out and making the show happen. I also want to encourage you to follow us on your favorite podcast app. Click subscribe and you will never miss an episode as well as following us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Lots of uh, new content that we're putting up on YouTube, including video versions of this show. So if you are only hearing my voice and you're saying, I just want to know what the host and the guests look like, good news, you can see it for yourself over at our YouTube channel because every one of these most recent episodes of the past year or so are uh, video and they are on our YouTube now. All things Go Creative Show at gocreativeshow.com. And of course, you can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Ben Consoli, at Ben Consoli, where I post all sorts of behind the scenes of my production company and all the things that I'm doing in my world. So you can check it out there. I want to thank you all for joining us today, and we will see you next week on another episode of the Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers. <laughs>